from PRX. Stew. Stew. Dear. Dear. Oh. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Now don't be sniffy about I'm not pens. being sniffy. I think I'm you mean, are. No, no. You've got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show, is this a serious show? Am I supposed to take this seriously? No, it can't repeat like that. We want it to stay the strange, weird place that it's always been. Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay. Sit. Dead ahead, the town of Twin Peaks. Five miles south of the Canadian border, 12 miles west of the state line. I've never seen so many trees in my life. Twin Peaks is coming back on Showtime on May 21st. The show went off the air. If you remember it, you're about to feel old. 26 years ago. Twin Peaks fans are about to be reunited with Special Agent Dale Cooper, the Log Lady, maybe even Laura Palmer. I'll see you again in 25 years. Back a few years ago, I talked to the show's co-creator, David Lynch. He explained how he came up with that memorable backwards dream sequence in the original show, which takes place in this eerie red waiting room. Well, it was about 6.30 at night. We'd finished shooting, um, editing for the day, and we'd gone out to the parking lot, and I was leaning my elbows on the roof of a car, and the, the roof was very warm. And all of a sudden, bingo, in comes uh, that red room. Just into your the, mind. Yeah. But it, that this is the way ideas come. Mm-hmm. But it was a, a huge blessing to get this idea. And then shooting it was also a thrill because it was completely shot backwards. Those, all the movements are backwards. All the dialogue is backwards. So uh, when you finish the scene, you're at the beginning. David Lynch's arty indie film approach ushered in something new, really ambitious television serials, as well as the true TV auteur. Although the original show only lasted two seasons, a quarter century later, you can see the influence everywhere. Chief, are you busy? What's that? Sid, are you busy? Got a request for your attendance. Can it wait? I just ate an omelet waiting for it to digest. Oh, yeah? What kind? Well, uh, mushrooms and cheese. Noah Hawley is the showrunner of the FX series Fargo. He's also the showrunner and the guy behind the new FX show Legion, which is based on a Marvel comic book. And he has published five novels, including last year's best-selling Before the Fall. Like a lot of people making quality television today, Hawley watched Twin Peaks when it was first on TV and says that it remains an enduring influence on him. One of the things that Lynch did and and especially did on, on Twin Peaks is he bypassed information. You know, if you think about what a story is, a story is there to convey information to you. But if you strip the information out, if you start to put images into it that don't seem to be connected to information, uh, you start to put things in people's heads. They, they have to fill in the information for themselves. And so 
a lot of David Lynch's most famous moments are disconnected from the story, but they have a sort of horrifying quality to them because we're not prepared for them. They're not part of the story. Which, of course, is like art rather than like what TV was in 1990. Yeah, and certainly back then, you know, I I did two shows for ABC, and there was only one note that you ever got in broadcast television, which was clarity. And and they would sacrifice everything for clarity. They'd sacrifice the joke. They'd sacrifice the moment. Um, So you end up seeing something and then having to explain to the audience what happened. And if you're lucky, you can avoid telling people it's about to happen as well. So certainly David Lynch uh, bypassed that whole dynamic. Um, it, it is pretty – I've discovered it's conventional wisdom that Twin Peaks uh, has been incredibly influential on television. Um, do you see that as, as somebody deep in TV where, where the influence is either witting or unwitting? Certainly the mixture, the humor of the of the police station, the sort of whimsy of right. the sort of heightened folksiness obviously is something we deal with on Fargo as well. But even more so on Twin Peaks, it's exaggerated in a way that also makes it hard to feel grounded. Is this a serious show? Am I supposed to take this seriously? There's something very horrifying going on and yet there's also this very comedic – element, and I think it makes it bypass the part of your brain that's prepared for the story that you're watching. Oh, dear. Lucy? Lucy, this is Pete Martell. Lucy, put Harry on the horn. Sheriff, it's Pete Martell up at the mill. Um, I'm going to transfer to the phone on the table by the red chair, the, the red chair against the wall, at the little table with the lamp on it, the lamp that we moved from the corner? There is something about the banality of life. Uh, and certainly what you learn out of that, other than that it's a sort of oddly specific and very funny, is how unprepared these people are for for a homicide. Well, and it's an interesting thing because it's not, it's not a comedy, but, but it's, it's not – and there are serious things and grim things. But it's, it's an interesting thing right in between and mixing them in a way that – certainly back then, was not commonly done on television. Yeah, and it's something that that Lynch did overall, I think, which is to take humor to the point of the grotesque. So if you think about it, a David Lynch visual, it might be a laughing person, but someone who's laughing for far too long or holding a smile to the point where it becomes a grimace. Um, So it takes this very familiar and sort of reassuring emotion and turns it into something creepy and uncanny. And, you know, I think that that's one of his true original thoughts is the fact that he takes familiar things and makes them behave in unfamiliar ways. And again, I mean that, oh, look, it's Norman Rockwell. No, it isn't. What was, you know, 26 years ago, uh, a relatively fresher perception. Yeah, and he had, you know, there was a lot of affectation as well. I mean, um, these teenagers, these archetypal teenagers, you had these the sort of bevy of, of beautiful um, teenage girls, all acting in a very 1950s right. um, kind of way. Do you like coffee? Yeah. Cream and sugar. E.J. Cooper loves coffee. Audrey. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing felt naturalistic. Everything ha- had an affect to it, and yet it, it was an affect that was deeply American and very familiar. And so we sort of saw it as an affect, but it also, you know, who, who were 
who are these teens except you know Archie and Veronica or or uh, you know straight out of the comics that we used to read? Uh, Noah Hawley, thank you very much. Thank you. Coming up, Twin Peaks popularized what's known as the beautiful dead girl trope on TV. She's dead, wrapped in plastic. Often shocking to watch, but surprising. I'm never surprised by the degree to which television and film are eager to degrade women. It's certainly distressing, and I wish there were more kinds of narratives about, you know, women not being murdered. Margaret Lyons, a New York Times television critic, up next in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. Previously on Twin Peaks. Diane, I'm at the Twin Peaks County Morgue with the body of the victim. What's her name? Laura Palmer. Laura Palmer. In advance of the new Twin Peaks episodes beginning later this month, we are looking at the lasting impact of the original. This was not a show you had on in the background while you were doing dishes. It was a show you sat down and absorbed and then thought and talked about, sometimes couldn't stop talking about. One of the things that I and lots of other people loved about Twin Peaks was its setting. The town and milieu, as weird and otherworldly as they were, also seemed familiar and very American. As Eric Malinsky found out, one small cohort of people don't think of Twin Peaks as a twisted world that exists only in fiction on TV. For them, Twin Peaks is a specific, real place. When Twin Peaks first went on the air in 1990, a lot of people felt creeped out watching it. But watching the show was really eerie for Harry Teeter, who goes by the nickname Buzz. Back then, Buzz was working for the Forest Service in Arizona. Came home from work one day, and my wife, Debbie, had this show on. And she was kind of real excited. She's like, oh, there's a show on called Twin Peaks and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, huh, really? See, Buzz used to live in a town called Twin Peaks in the mountains northeast of Los Angeles, near Lake Arrowhead. The Twin Peaks he used to live in was a logging town with a big sawmill, just like the show. And it was full of total characters, like the show. But when it came to the main storyline, the murder of Laura Palmer, that's when the parallels got way more disturbing for Buzz. In 1974, he'd come back to Twin Peaks after getting out of the Army. He got a cabin with his girlfriend, Nancy Easton, and one night they went to a dinner party. Now, Nancy went back to the cabin alone because Buzz was staying with a friend who was helping him fix his Jeep. In the middle of the night, Buzz got a call that his cabin was burning down, so they sped over. It was a nasty night out. It was foggy, it was cold, it was windy, it was rain off and on, and... By the time we started pulling the grade up to where the house was, I mean, the the night was just aglow with a fire from this place. It was totally involved. And uh, we pulled up, and of course, I'm like, well, where's Nancy? A deputy took him aside. He, uh, He said, she's in the house, and I need you to identify her. I mean, of course, Buzz was completely devastated. 
but he had no idea things were about to get worse. The next day, he learned that the cabin didn't burn down because of something like faulty wiring. It was arson. Nancy had been sexually assaulted and murdered. So in 1990, when he watched Twin Peaks, he was really disturbed by the parallels. They were just a couple years off in age. Uh, I believe in the TV series when Laura Palmer's killed, she's uh, seven, 17, something like that. Um, Nancy had just turned 20. They both worked at the lodge across the lake. They were both homecoming queens. And they're both killed in the same manner. Watching the show, he felt traumatized all over again. Yeah, I, I was angry. I just didn't need my nose, you know, shoved into this again and reminded on a weekly basis about what happened. Another parallel? In the first episode of Twin Peaks, the cops immediately suspect Laura Palmer's boyfriend. Are his dead? Yes. Did you understand your rights as they were explained to you? You think I killed her? That happened to Buzz. They worked me over, you know, interrogation and trying to break my story. And finally they go, well, we want you to take a polygraph test. And would you be willing to do that? And I said, well, yeah, of course I would. Well, I went in and I failed it. Because every time they, they mentioned her name, I could feel my heart take off and I could hear the machine behind me go go crazy. So I stood up, came out of there, and they handcuffed me and said, you're under arrest for first-degree homicide. After a few days, Buzz calmed down, and he passed the polygraph test. Also, his friend could back up his alibi. But a cloud of suspicion followed him everywhere. One day, his boss at the fire department called him in for a meeting. Basically told me I was never going to get a promotion I wasn't going anywhere in that fire department. And I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, I just saw my performance report. I had an outstanding performance report. And he goes, that's not it. He goes, it's this Twin Peaks thing. And I, I was like, what? And he goes, oh, yeah. He goes, there's people upstairs, which would be the chief, the admin people. Some people up there think you got away with murder. Buzz quit that day. Ironically, he went into law enforcement where he found himself working with the cop who arrested him. I mean, like the show, this is a small town where everyone knows each other. And that's when he learned that there actually was a suspect. But for a couple of reasons, this guy was never arrested. So Buzz spent the next few decades trying to prove that that man had killed Nancy. And he makes a pretty compelling case, but since the man was never formally charged, I'm not going to say what his name was. But in 2005... Buzz says he got a letter from a hospice care worker who told him that that man was a patient of hers. And before he died, he gave a deathbed confession that he had killed Nancy. And at the time, this caregiver didn't even know who Nancy was. Um, I went out behind the house, sat in the backyard at a table and uh, cried my eyes out. Because it was over, as far as I was concerned. Well, not quite. When he read that David Lynch was going to restart Twin Peaks, Buzz felt like he needed to tell his story. So he wrote a book about it, because he thinks that David Lynch was inspired by Nancy's murder. He lived in Southern California 
when this all happened. Because at that time, in 1974, 75, 76, a lot of people were talking about it. Another thing that makes me think that he knew about this was in um, late 1985-86 he pitched a movie script to uh, Dino De Laurentiis about a murder mystery that was called Up at the Lake anybody in Hollywood if if I'd been gone for a couple days and somebody asked me where you been and I said well I've been up at the lake everybody in Hollywood knows I'm talking you're, it's Lake Arrowhead because that's where everybody goes Yeah, he actually loves David Lynch. I mean, not Twin Peaks for personal reasons, but he's a big fan of Blue Velvet, Mulholland Drive. He even likes Dune. If anything, he was using the series as a hook to get people to hear his story because ultimately he wrote the book for himself. When I wrote that book, I think it was cathartic. I think it helped kind of remove the albatross from around my neck. Like I can talk to you about it right now. Ten years ago, I couldn't have. I, I, it would be too emotional. There are over a hundred towns in America called Twin Peaks, and I wouldn't be surprised if there's someone in every one of those towns who watched the show in 1990 and thought, "Hey, that's my Twin Peaks." Now, none of the towns in the state of Washington where the show was filmed are actually called Twin Peaks. But the show sparked a different kind of identity crisis for them. Until Twin Peaks went on the air, North Bend and Snoqualmie were known as sleepy logging towns with great fishing, hiking, and skiing. And suddenly they had this new identity imposed on them by a filmmaker with a very strange sensibility. Kyle Tweedy grew up in North Bend, and he remembers the moment when everything changed. So when the first show came out, you know, Uh, everybody was sitting down, everybody in town sitting down watching the show, and uh, there's pictures of the birds and the mountains and all the fun stuff that uh, people love about North Bend. But then all of a sudden there was this dead gal wrapped in plastic, and uh, um, half half the town turned their, their TVs off. They didn't want to be known as, as the serial killer town. Good Lord, Lord. Now, Kyle is the owner of Tweedy's Cafe, which is the same location as the Double R Diner on the show. That's where all the characters plotted their evil schemes or gossiped about who killed Laura Palmer. And Kyle says it's hard to walk the line between being a real place and a destination for tourists who come there with big expectations. Like on the show, another guy named Kyle, actor Kyle McLaughlin, is always going on about how this diner has the best damn coffee in the world. And the cherry pie... This must be where pies go when they die. Mm. That's hard to live up to. Let me tell you, uh, cherry pie is expensive to make, expensive to uh, buy the ingredients for, and a pain in the butt to make by hand, uh, which we do. But it's not all cherry pie in Twin Peaks. Dana Hughbanks is a musician, and she works at the Black Dog Arts Cafe in Snoqualmie. She thinks that David Lynch captured something about the area that feels right to her. Something darker, more mysterious. There's so many specific elements, whether it comes down to like the the track of the chorus frogs that he chooses to put into a scene behind, you know, dialogue at night or, or the you know, the way that the road looks with like the towering evergreen trees. 
you know, when James is riding his motorcycle down the road at night. Now, Dana was born in 1990, the year that Twin Peaks came out. She went to the same high school we saw on the show with the red stripes in the walls. And she says that growing up, her friends completely embraced their reputation as the real Twin Peaks. Just even from the time of being in middle school and high school, I remember there being this sense of um, almost like a, a curse hanging over the town. And, that, you know, that sounds really cliche and, and corny, but it's it's true. I mean, that was often a part of the conversation. Um, there was a string of, of years, maybe 10 years, where every single year someone from the high school would die in some tragic way, whether, you know, drowning in the river or, you know, murders and suicides and, you know, terrible car accidents. And there's um, there was definitely this sense of, you know, tragedy just sort of hanging over the town a lot of the time and, and still. And, and it creates this sort of atmosphere where you can almost see a story like Laura's story playing out. Of course, everything feels melodramatic when you're a teenager. That's why I loved the show when I was in high school. But this area does have an unusual track record of grisly murders. In the 1980s and 90s, Gary Ridgway, the so-called Green River serial killer, dumped the bodies of his 50 victims along the Green River east of Seattle. Dana remembers two instances where men killed their entire families, and one of them lived up the road from her when she was a kid. There's also a literal darkness to the show, which feels right to her. And it's not a camera trick. That's just the way the area looks. I just spent the last year traveling the country, and I just returned to Snoqualmie like two months ago. And when I came back to Washington, you know, the people that I was traveling with, I turned to them and was like, I like, I forgot how dark, like how literally, you know, the sky and the colors and the trees and the hillsides, like how literally dark this place is compared to anywhere else in the country. Christy Coffing owns the cafe where Dana works. We get so much rain and so much darkness. And when it, when it first begins in the winter, you think, oh, this is fine, I can handle it. And then a couple months in, you just think that you're going to go insane. But Christy strives to keep a positive attitude. Her cafe is a haven for local artists and musicians. And when they were filming the new season of Twin Peaks... The crew was in there regularly. We had David Lynch in for lunch, and he was just very gracious. And did he order pie or coffee? No, he had. I think he had a turkey BLT. <laughs> Christy loved Twin Peaks when it came out. In fact, before the show debuted, someone from the props department bought a diary at a store that Christy ran. At the time, she didn't think anything of it. But that diary turned out to be a huge plot point on the show. It was filled with Laura Palmer's secrets. And then she's written, nervous about meeting Jay tonight. That's the letter J, Diane. And that is the last entry. You know, you have to remember that at the time we were a logging community. So most of that that community, the loggers, they didn't really care either way. But a lot of the merchants just stood up and took notice because it was just amazing the tourism that it brought to town. Kyle Tweedy also relies on tourism, but he didn't mean to. When he bought the diner in the late 90s, he thought that Twin Peaks was a fad that had passed its prime. So he remodeled with banners of local sports teams. But then in uh, maybe three months after uh, owning the business and opening it up, there was this gal standing there looking at the one or two pictures that we had left of uh, Twin Peaks. And uh, she had flown from Germany 
to New York, from New York to Seattle, got in a taxi and came here. Didn't have a hotel, didn't have anything else. 19 years old, she had to get to here. So at that point, we just really realized that for some of these fans, it was really a mecca for them, you know, a place that they needed to, needed to visit before they died. So um, we began at that point to try to amass as many Twin Peaks memorabilia things so that we could. Then in 2015, he learned that David Lynch was coming back to film season three of Twin Peaks. Sat down with David Lynch and uh, asked him what he wanted to do, and he said he kind of wanted to take it back to the way it was before. I said, well, if that's what you want to do, go ahead. But the town can't go back. When Twin Peaks first went on the air, some of the locals worried that the show was undercutting the small-town charm of the area. But now they're facing a bigger identity crisis whether these towns will remain small towns. Now, they're only 30 miles east of Seattle. And since the tech boom took off, they've become very desirable locations for people working at places like Amazon or Zillow. The population has quadrupled since 1990. Housing prices have soared beyond what a lot of locals can afford. They're even tearing down the old high school to make way for all the new families. And that bums out Dana Hubanks. We, we want it to stay the, the strange, weird place that it's always been. And again, going back to the, you know, the relatability with the series, it's like coming here, you could go into, you know, any bar in North Bend and, and meet someone just as, as weird and strange and, you know, whatever you want as a character on Twin Peaks. But the more that that, you know, development happens and the more that that gentrification happens, you know, the less and less of that you see in the, you know, more and more of, you know, suburban families and parts of the community that, that don't bring the character that has always been associated with this place. So when Dana watches Twin Peaks, she sees a time capsule. I mean, yeah, everybody in the show is up in each other's business and trying to screw each other over, but at least they know their neighbors. I feel uh, nostalgic for that time, even though I was only, you know, I was an infant in that time. But, but just to know that there was a, a time when this place was was a little bit more protected from all of that craziness, and yeah, I wish we could return to it. That's right. To her, craziness is not a supernatural serial killer named Bob. It's seeing a banana republic where there used to be a mom and pop store. Or seeing BMWs where there used to be pickup trucks. Every week, basically, you see a new, like, notice of public land use go up. And you're like, all right, you know, another shopping center, another housing development, you know, what's next? And I think a lot of people in this area feel like, you know, we're destined to become another Anytown USA, basically. Eric Malinsky is host of the podcast Imaginary Worlds, which is about sci-fi and fantasy and other not necessarily realistic genres. When you think of Twin Peaks, you see that image of Laura Palmer smiling in her prom picture. But there's another way we remember her and her face – And the New York Times TV critic Margaret Lyons is here with me to talk about that. 
you know, Twin Peaks has sort of this iconic shot of Laura Palmer all sort of gray and decaying and wrapped in plastic. And that's one of the most iconic shots of television, period, but certainly one of the most from Twin Peaks. And then we have a spate of other shows that have centrally mysterious murders of beautiful teen women. And everybody now pretty much agrees that Twin Peaks is where it all began for what we now call the beautiful dead girl trope. These days, you practically can't turn on television without seeing an example of this. I guess it depends on what channel you're turning on, yeah. right? So I think that, I turn to the dead, beautiful dead girl channel. Yeah, sure, CBS. Yeah. Um, no, I think is that it? I don't turn to CBS. No, I mean I was joking because they have so many crime procedures. They do. So I think beautiful dead girl has become standardized, but we're also seeing just a rise in all kinds of television. Period. So there are just more right. shows. Um, so the beautiful dead girl is a that it's on a, on episodic television really Mm -hmm. is what we're talking about, right? And is there a whole range of death or are they always murdered by a a man? Or how how does that work? Um, I think the more standard sort of relationship between all these shows is that this girl's death is the central mystery that's guiding at least one, but sometimes more than one season of the show. Right. This is the drop in the center of the pond and the sort of rippling circles. And so we are seeing the townspeople and the police officers and the victim's family and and sort of how they're coping with or not coping with loss and grief and confusion and also an ongoing investigation. When we're talking about the shows that we're talking about, like Twin Peaks and Veronica Mars and The Killing, uh, the similarities there are beyond just there's a central character who has died or that it's a central teen girl who has died, but that we're also sort of exploring the ways in which our characters thought they knew her but didn't. Right. Does it have to be a young woman? So the shows that we're talking about primarily are young women, and they're primarily um, like 16, 17, 18. Hmm. Um, so a lot of these shows focus on or address or are obsessed with this kind of uh, emergent female sexuality, which is often uh, goes hand in hand with murder in a lot of American pop culture. Certainly yeah. in horror movies, you know, if you have sex, like, you will house. be murdered, you yeah, know. Right. So yeah. um, that kind of terror around like this unbelievably potent strain of female sexuality, which is the high school girl sexuality. Right. I think a lot of the shows that we're talking about and certainly the direct descendants of Twin Peaks yeah, it, we're talking about yeah. teen girls. So let's talk about the role that the sexual lives of these beautiful dead girl victims plays in this trope. Oftentimes, it's that she had a secret, much older boyfriend. We've seen that in several shows, including Twin Peaks, including Veronica Mars. That sort of factors in. And I think that's part of the sort of panic that exists in regular life around, you know, like Lolita type and and, and that being a sort of hot button kind of thing and, and something that drives a lot of drama. And generally, this is something that our central dead girl has hid from her parents. And so it's typically brought up as a way to indicate that um, they didn't really know her. Um, and it's probably not that unusual for teenagers to not be forthcoming with their parents about their sex lives. But uh, on shows like this, it's often um, something very dangerous, someone that her parents are maybe associated with or some kind of secret seedy underbelly sex work, often in some sort of surprisingly kinky ways that we're also going to be considering very bad and dangerous. Which is such a, a common theme in these shows. Even Laura Palmer, turns out she got around a lot. So she wasn't really as innocent as everybody thought. And therefore, she had it coming. That seems so retrograde in 2017 as a narrative idea, but you you see it all the time, and it surprises me kind of. 
Um, I'm never surprised by the degree to which television and film are eager to degrade women. Like, I couldn't do my job if that kept surprising me because I'd never be able to write about anything else. Yeah. Um, it's certainly distressing, and I wish there were more kinds of narratives about, you know, women not being murdered. Yeah. So in Twin Peaks, the question, the brand was who killed Laura Palmer. Through all these shows, and now that we've had 25 years of them, is that the prototype? And are the people who make the Beautiful Dead Girl shows today, are they thinking, yeah, it's kind of – it's 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 Twin Peaksy? I don't know how you could not, um, given the sort of overwhelming pervasiveness of Twin Peaks as sort of a cultural touchstone. Um, it would be ludicrous to be making a TV show today that had some kind of central dead girl mystery in it and not think about Twin Peaks or not have – someone at some point say like oh like Twin Peaks and even if your response is no 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 not like that I yes. mean but it's not that there's nothing interesting there certainly true stories of missing or dead young women are compelling to us as a society um, and trying to mind that for entertainment is not going to go away anytime soon and I'm not sure that we've exhausted it as a genre but I think you know I think considering many of these shows descendants of Twin Peaks is accurate. Well, the other thing that we have seen in this same period since Laura Palmer, which also happens to be the cable news period, is the missing and or dead white girl phenomenon. Yes. Focus on white and beautiful if possible. I mean, John Benet Ramsey, Natalie Holloway, Kaylee Anthony, J.C. Dugard, all these names I vaguely know because they were these white women victims. Right? Yeah, and we should be clear, a lot of I, gosh, off the top of my head, I think every single show we're talking about is about a white victim and when we're thinking about culture in general we pay much more attention to white victims of crimes than we do to any kinds of any, particularly women of color who are the victims of crimes. Um, and certainly trans women and trans women of color are murdered at an alarming rate and, and out of sync with the rest of the population, but we're not getting the same kinds of um, wrenching stories about that because, you know, we live in a racist society. That is certainly true. I've got, in fact, a clip here from the stand-up comedian Naomi Ekparagan talking about the, the white women victims on Law & Order. It's amazing how every episode is involves a white woman in peril. You know, it's like a white woman's in peril. That's how we get people to care, you know? And it's just nonsense. But if there's one thing that I feel like we should be taking away is that, like, white ladies, okay, Megan's, Sarah's, Becky's, okay? You guys have got to stop with the jogging at dawn and dusk. You gotta stop! I hate to go Jesse Jackson, but if the light is low, you should not go. Are you following me? <laughs> um, it is a very white narrative phenomenon, even as television has become less lily white. Yes, and television has still a pretty long way to go. But uh, no, we are seeing strides in television be more representative in general. So beautiful dead girl trope in general. I, I, I get how it uh, – in its repetition, degrades women. But do you think it really is, in a significant way, an anti-woman thing? Yeah, I think that really, really depends on the show. Because I think of Veronica Mars as an extremely empowered show and a show that has a lot to say about the sort of um, abilities and desires and, and the sort of fully understood selfhood of women, um, particularly teen girls. You know, I think of Veronica as uh, – 
total heroine is somebody that I would be happy for people to look up to. I think she's interesting and smart and determined, um, obviously has a lot of baggage and, and would benefit tremendously, I think, probably from therapy or something if she were a real person. But, uh, you know, I don't think of Veronica Mars as a show that debases women. I think it's a show that acknowledges that women are the victims of sex crimes and men are the victims of sex crimes and that you can be a survivor of that and still have a full life and still have things that you're passionate about and can still be a very good investigator and can can still um, help solve your best friend's murder and, and, you know, take down these huge crime rings in your town and stuff. And um, with somebody like you who watches a jillion TV shows and has (laughs) – now I have discovered the even more encyclopedic uh, knowledge of television than I – Anticipated. Um, <laughs> you, you must look at oh, the, just the names of the writers and see oh, look, women wrote this and men wrote this. D- does there seem to be any uh, pattern in that men do it this way or women do it this way in terms of writers and showrunners and so forth? Um, I don't know. I think you know. I mean, Veronica Mars, a showrunner for that is Rob Thomas. Um, but I think it's important that he was a high school teacher for a period of time and and spent a lot of time around young women and hearing how they talk and what they care about. Right. And so I think um, it's it's less important that certain shows are written by men and certain shows are written by women and more the driving factor being do we take teen girls seriously and can we think about a teen girl and and her ideas as serious? And so I think shows that can take you into the interior lives of women and and show the fullness of that are good. And men can write those shows and women can write those shows. The truth is just that we don't have that many of them, period. Right. Margaret Lyons, it has been a great pleasure talking to you about this. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure for me. Margaret Lyons is a TV critic for The New York Times, where she recently published a terrific Twin Peaks refresher in advance of the Showtime revival. You can find a link to it on our site, studio360.org. And coming up now... There's still something in in common with the kind of repetitive, almost this taffy is, you know, pulling slowly and this kind of musical goo in a way, and I don't mean that in any derogatory way. The glorious and gooey music of Twin Peaks. That's up next in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. Studio 360. Oh, Diane, I almost forgot. Got to find out what kind of trees these are. They're really something. We are not out of the woods yet. We're talking about David Lynch's Twin Peaks, the new one and the one 26 years ago. As remarkable as the imagery in the show was, equally cool and un-TV-like for the time was the score by Angelo Badalamenti. David would sit right over here, right to the right of me, and we would put a little cassette just about over here on this keyboard. In the documentary Secrets from Another Place, Badalamenti describes how Lynch finessed him into musicalizing some of the show's major themes without showing him any footage. Just get me into that beautiful darkness with the soft wind, and I started playing. Badalamenti's approach smashed the conventions for how to score a dramatic TV series. Two composers, both creators of well-known TV themes themselves, explain how that happened. 
you know, it's like, uh, wow, everything's just so great. Nobody dies. Everyone's happy. But there is just this little tinge of something. My name is Dave Porter. And I'm a composer for film and television, probably best known for Breaking Bad and its uh, current prequel, Better Call Saul. Hi, I'm Mark Snow. I am a composer, TV and film. I wrote music for the X-Files. And today we're going to be talking about the great Twin Peaks and especially the marvelous music of Angelo Badalamenti. The landscape for music and television when I was a teenager, we're talking the 80s, was pretty bleak. The music for those shows had a certain formulaic approach where I think the composer was not particularly encouraged to get off the reservation too much. In those days, music was called upon to cover up a lot of other sins. Bad acting, uh, poor writing, and music also had to be made quickly and cheaply. And all those things together put the composer often in a bind. If I hadn't heard about Twin Peaks or David Lynch or any of this, and I was surfing around on TV and I heard that music... I would think maybe it was like a, a mild western, <laughs> almost, hearing that guitar. He's never in a hurry to do anything. And things are pitched low, uh, but they're also just moseying along at a very deliberate tempo. I know from experience, directors and producers would always be talking about, we got to save this scene, it needs more pulse, it can't be too slow, it don't know, it can't repeat like that, we, you know, it's just got to bang, you know, forward and all that kind of thing. And here's this piece that just kind of sits there. There, there is a beauty that I love of using particularly old synthesizers. They weren't always the best at staying exactly in tune. A synthesizer would have a, a chip or an engine in, in, that would play each key, and each key might be slightly off from the next. And there's a little of that in there that I also adore that, that has that little bit of darkness. Why are we from the birds sing a freshly song? And there's always music in the air. I'm not sure which one of them said, <laughs> hey, let's try this cool jazz for this part. But again, it's a, a marvelous choice. It does seem to fit, doesn't it? It defies expectation of why or how it fits, other than the tempo, which is very down, and the overall moodiness of it. 
there's still something in, in common with the kind of repetitive, almost this taffy is, you know, pulling slowly and this kind of musical goo in a way, and I don't mean that in any derogatory way. Again, it's in the key of C. Now, I know Angelo can write music <laughs> in a lot of keys, but I think that part of the choice of having all of these pieces we're discussing in the same key of C continues the theme of, of the moody, hypnotic quality of it. Uh, in my own work, I'm wary of repetition and repeating things exactly the same way for, for a lot of reasons. For one, people watch shows so differently now, and it's entirely possible that someone would be sitting on the couch and watching three hours in a row of the show you're working on. And if you have you know, a theme X for character X, a few times an hour, suddenly you've tripled that, and it can easily become overkill. Uh, but that certainly wasn't the case. I mean, we, we waited an awfully long seven days to get to the next Twin Peaks that first year. May I have your attention, please? This is Principal Wolchek. I am deeply saddened to have to tell you that early this morning, your classmate, Laura Palmer, was found dead. This is a terrible moment for all of us. For all of us who knew her. Still gives me chills. Gives me goosebumps. I love it. It's just a very, very heavy analog synthesizer. And when that super low bass octave comes in, you can feel it in your chest. And then it makes this crazy turn, right? Into the Laura that used to be as opposed to Laura in the bag on the beach. It's building and, oh, it's beautiful and more beautiful. And then a, a climax. Oh, yes, here we are at the top of the beauty. And now here's, here's a moment where it's big and sweeping. Almost operatic, actually. But it's all in contrast to what he set up before. And then, yeah, we're back to, you know, we're back to the dark world again. It's an A-flat major chord with the third on the bass. Actually, in the X-Files theme, the accompaniment figure was exactly those notes, but it was arpeggiated, like... It was the same thing. That's Angelo's and this and mine is... Even though these pieces are seemingly disparate, 
um, when you hear one, you're instantly transported into that world. I mean, even if you're in another room and you hear it but don't see it, you're going to know that that's what it is. Dave Porter, who composed the music for Breaking Bad and now is doing so for Better Call Saul and The Blacklist. We also heard from Mark Snow, who was the composer for X-Files and currently does music for Blue Bloods. And that's it for this week's episode. Studio 360 is a co-production of WNYC and PRI, Public Radio International. Here I sit, literally, in a small and featureless red room. Through a window, into the darkness, I see our interim executive producer. Snowslim Gonzalez. And our senior editor. The technical director. And our producers. Same game. Skylar Zlantzon. Tommy Bazarian. Zoe Zondras. And I thought our intern was supposed to be gone, but there he still is, apparently. Max Gibson. And who did you say you were? I'm Kurt Anderson. You have to speak up, Sheriff. Hearing's gone. Long story. I'm Kurt Anderson, and thanks very much for listening. PRI Public Radio International. Next time in Studio 360, President Trump has met the enemy and they are... Canada. What they've done to our dairy farm workers is a disgrace. It's a disgrace. Before a wall goes up there, we look at Canadian artists who make us happy to be North Americans. It's what the next Studio 360 is all about from PRI and WNYC. How's your heart been beating? How's your skin been keeping? How's the dreaming going?